Hey! You're listening to Talk of Shame, a Wamina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. I'm your host, Alia Moro. I'm an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist and author of the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom. Having felt the impacts of shame, or Arab, as Arabs like to call it, on many aspects of my life, I've become pretty obsessed with the concept and the question of how we can rid ourselves from it. Throughout the season, I dig deeper into shame with the help of some brilliant guests. Shame breeds shame, so we gotta talk about it. I think the most significant way in which shame has impacted my life. I think the general theme of shame upon women is it has kept me from doing a lot of things that I would have otherwise done. It's like you're leaving someone else's dream. I can't work out if it's something that I've subconsciously grown up with and it's been ingrained in me so much that I don't even see it, or if I'm self-inflicting it. Limits me from doing what I want to do and being who I want to be. You behave how other people want you to behave. Choices that would have changed my life for the better. Choices that would have given me much more freedom to be and grow into the woman that I am. You laugh when they want you to laugh. You react to things the way they want you to react. Shame has instilled a constant voice in the back of my head that says, what will your parents say? What will people think? I just always feel like I'm shaming them. Like You're trying to raise to their highest expectations of you. And I've come to realize that that voice in the back of your head is just so irrelevant. It's not essential to any part of your growth. And it goes in circles, rounds and rounds of madness. And I'm trying to undo the impact that it has on my decision-making and my free will. One day you just decide that it's enough. I really, really want to wake up. How many times can I say that shame has a huge impact on our lives before it starts to get reductive? But for real, shame so often causes us to repress and suppress things. And it makes it so difficult, if not impossible, to show up in the world as our authentic, confident selves. It's something I've personally felt in my own life. And as I touch on a little bit in the episode, it prevented me from living how I wanted to live, in particular when it came to my sex life. Oh my God. It's so difficult to say sex life out loud even now, despite the fact that I've done a lot of work on getting past the shame around it. Still a work in progress. Ultimately, it results in you depriving yourself of access to a huge part of you and stifling your potential, settling for being sheep. That's Mariam Guth, who I had the pleasure of chatting with for this episode. Mariam is a Saudi shadow worker who works to psychoanalyze and confront the darker truths of the things that we suppress. She also explores many of these themes in her storytelling work. We touched on the difference between the individual and collective shadow, how shame impacts us throughout our lives and more. I hope you enjoy the episode. Stick around after because I'll be speaking to a therapist from our sponsor, BetterHelp, on the ways in which shame can impact our mental health specifically. For now, Mariam kicks us off by telling us what she thinks about when she hears the word shame. Shame breeds shame. Let's talk about it. I have two views, I guess. I have what I've read and what I've experienced. Um, Renee Brown defines shame as 
um, the belief that we're flawed and uh, therefore unworthy of love and connection. Uh, Carl Jung, a famous psychiatrist, described it as a soul-eating emotion. For me, uh, because my feelings of shame have been centered around this whole notion of the Aib and Haram, uh, and very much uh, sexual shaming, and in the name of honor, I would equate it with the feeling of retraction, painful retraction, shrinking. You can almost feel it as a stab in your womb, in the essence of who you are as a woman. And unfortunately, uh, feelings of uh, filth accompany that. There's a, a feeling of, uh, of dirt, like, uh, you know, you're, you're not um, good enough, I suppose, to, to experience the joys of of love and, and uh, I was going to say purity, but I'm not sure I want to use that word. Yeah, the word pure is, uh, has a lot of connotations with it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's how I would uh, describe it personally. Now, I take into account that shame may have originated from a helpful place to warn us against behaviors that could lead to disconnection. Um, it seems that connection is central to our well-being and shame is fear of potential connection. But as many defense mechanisms, they can be limiting and they can also envelope us with a deep sense of rejection, a rejection of ourselves. So in terms of shame, sort of Brene Brown's definition of shame, which is the mm. idea that we're, you know, unworthy or inherently sort of unlovable. How do you think that this sort of Aib and the shaming as Arab women that we grow up with, how do you think that that ties into this feeling of unworthiness? Well, I mean, I guess the answer is in the question. You feel unworthy of opportunities, of connection, of uh, of showing yourself, of showing up, actually, of expressing yourself and connecting to your sensuality, your feminine energy, or men to their emotions and to their desires. You end up with a psychic division, a mentality that favors repression over integration and denial over admission. I definitely felt that a lot growing up. And I think it's only something that I'm really beginning to unpick is this idea of just because I don't live up to the ideals that I've been told I should, that doesn't mean that I'm inherently bad, um, which sounds really sad to say as like a 31 year old woman that I'm only <laughs> just starting to kind of get to terms with that. Yeah, well, I, I think that's quite a natural consequence. You know, in societies that are predicated on image, reputation, honor, at the cost of individuality and freedom of expression, and motivated by fear and obedience to authority rather than authenticity and an inner moral compass, then you're bound to create the feelings that you're describing, a separation and almost confusion around which parts of yourself are okay to shed light on or to express and reveal to the world and which parts are not. So I know that a big, you know, a big part of what you do is shadow work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what is shadow work and, and how shame relates to the shadow. 
Okay, so that's a very big question with a big answer. Uh, let's let's dissect it. So we'll start with what is the shadow? Uh, the shadow is a term coined by that psychiatrist that I'd mentioned earlier, Carl Jung, and it refers to a collection of impulses, desires, and emotions that have been repressed into the subconscious mind, and that the ego does not want to identify with. And he goes on to explain that we have a personal shadow and a collective shadow. And the personal shadow is a result of our direct experiences, but the collective shadow is culturally determined. Now, shame may very well be a shadow element. However, I'd say that whatever has triggered shame is more so a shadow element than shame itself. Interesting. Imagine the shadow is an area in the subconscious mind. It's a collection of different elements. Shame might be one of those elements, just as guilt and a sense of inferiority and whatever else it may be in that collection. So you can consider shame a shadow element, but what triggered shame? Is it a sense of inferiority? Is it shame in your body? It depends. So it really depends on what triggered shame. And I'd say whatever is beneath that is more so a shadow element. The deeper you go, the more you'll find. Okay. But what has triggered these conflicts and these responses and reactions? Is it an unbridled emotion? Is it uh, homosexual tendencies? Is it, uh, I don't know, a love for whiskey? Whatever it may be. Ultimately, that is probably what we have repressed into the shadow. Interesting. Um, As for shadow work, it's facilitating the process of making that which is unconscious, conscious. I sometimes refer to it as conscious articulation because what you're really doing is honing in on what you think and feel and want and deciding whether you want to explore and realize those discoveries or revise them or accept them. With shadow work, what you do with your self-knowledge is really up to you. In some cases, just by virtue of identifying an undesirable tendency, you loosen its grip on you and you're no longer held hostage by it. However, that does not always suffice, especially when we're dealing with a response that is so deeply ingrained and has been in the making for years, then it's a question of willpower, but also whether you think it's worth working on. And this is why I I try to always bring the conversation back to what you think your sense of purpose is, what your calling is, and have that determine everything else. If you discover a tendency that gets in the way with your calling, then sure, you might want to consider revising it. But if not then you might want to consider accepting it. And in some cases, actually using it to your advantage because not all these, some of these disagreeable qualities can actually serve us. Uh, An example is um, anger. Anger towards certain injustices can fuel the most impactful movements and become an agent of change. In addition, I wanted to say not everything that we repress is negative. Yeah. You know, sensitivity and and sensuality are prime examples. Sensitivity, especially in men, uh, by virtue of repressing it, they cut themselves off of their emotions. 
um, sensuality is a huge one for women, especially us women from the Middle East, um, deprive a woman of that connection and you deprive her of a fundamental part of who she is. And that results in being rigid, bitter, envious on the one end of the spectrum, on the other, uh, swinging the other way and becoming overtly promiscuous, not by society's standards. Who gives a shit about that? It's, it's by your own standards. And so you, you end up, actually, I think a lot of times we end up swinging between the two, expressing, holding back, expressing, holding back. Yeah, I think it can be quite, um, you know, even acting out against something is still being led by shame. I'd, I, so you mentioned um, that there's, you know, in the individual shadow and then there's sort of the collective shadow, which I think that when we're part of collectivist cultures like those in the Middle East can be very strong. Can you speak a little bit to the difference between the individual shadow and the collective shadow and how that plays out? Yeah, the the personal shadow will have resulted from your own direct experiences, from your childhood, your upbringing, your immediate surroundings, the impact of an unavailable father, an abusive mother, being told what to wear and what not to wear, or what you should and should not do, uh, dancing is incorrect, whatever it may be, all these things end up being repressed into your own personal shadow as a result of your personal experiences. The collective shadow is culturally determined. So, for example, female circumcision is accepted in certain cultures, but considered abhorrent in others. So that's a collective issue. Pedophilia seems to be universally frowned upon, whereas um, uh, sex may not be in certain cultures pre-marriage and very accepted in others. So it really depends. Interesting. How did you get into shadow work and what is something that comes up often with the people that you work with, especially in terms of people or women in the Middle East? For women, it's definitely a severed connection to their sensuality. For sure. Uh, for men, um, I don't know if there's one. They've been quite varied and, and mostly from the Middle East, interestingly enough, mostly from the Gulf. Okay. But uh, I'd say if I had to pick, it's often a feeling of wasting oneself. Like they've followed paths that don't resonate. They're in careers that that they don't like anymore and they don't know what to do and they're afraid of what to do. And so we'll sit there and, and try and um, figure it out, I guess, together. Um, what got me into shadow work is I liked the honesty of it and the fact that, you know, you can walk into this with all your flaws. You know, there's no pressure to be some guru or some life coach who knows it all. No, if anything, it, it works in your favor to have all these um, dysfunctions. And so I like the honesty of it, the truth of it. Um, and it also encourages an integrated sense of self, a truthful expression of the self. Hmm. And I like that. I think I kind of got fed up of 
trying to meet expectations. And there was a major shift that happened. I went from a desperate need to belong to a desperate need to, to be and create. And uh, shadow work goes very well with that. Let's pause the conversation here for some words from our sponsor, BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, you can start prioritizing your mental health and living a more balanced life today. It's not always easy to find a therapist you're comfortable with, and the journey can make the idea of therapy scary for some. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They also make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and there is a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in many areas. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. As a Talk of Shame listener, you get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. Use promo code Talk of Shame and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Back to the conversation. In your work, how do you sort of start to unpick the shame that makes up the shadow? Um, I, I can't say that I unpick it. What I do is I really try as best as I can to let the person articulate what they're feeling and what that feeling feels like, how it is manifested in their lives. So if you feel ashamed about the way you look, how is that impacting you? What are the habits that you are adopting as a result of it? And how does that serve you? What is your sense of purpose again? Does it interfere? You could say, well, I'm overeating as a result, and that's making me feel sluggish, which is interfering with how energetic I feel with regards to my sense of purpose. Okay, then, is there anything that you want to do about it? And so we'll go about it that way. And I really try and let the, the person before me take the lead. I simply help with, in some cases, explaining the cause and effect of our experiences. Um, in other cases, simply helping you define it. My approach is really descriptive rather than prescriptive. So it's about the behavior, ultimately, how that feeling manifests itself. Yeah, and what is it causing? I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, it might not be worth working on every single flaw you discover. Out of the 20 that you discover, maybe some you can simply accept. And I guess if shame is linked to this feeling of being unworthy or flawed, then letting go of that as a negative attribute or a negative thing in itself can sort of rid the shame around it. Yeah. Or, or, and this might be slightly philosophical, accepting that we're flawed. And it's true. We are flawed. And so what? Yeah. You know, uh, and, and in some cases, your flaws will make you unworthy of the kind of relationship you aspire to. I think there is a degree of acceptance that will come in handy here. And then again, going back to what we discussed, how much 
of that shame interferes with what you want out of life. Yeah, I'd love to speak a little bit more about that in terms of sort of what the long-term impacts shame and this feeling that we carry around it has on our lives. Well, I think that, you know, shame has branches, each bearing its own sour fruit. And I think there are different things that we're ashamed of, different types of shame, if you like. It would be hard for me to tell you the impact because it really depends on which aspect of shame we're we're discussing, which type of shame we're discussing. But I can tell you, generally speaking, the impact of uh, not integrating shadow elements into our conscious awareness. And I'll, I'll try and narrow it down and think of it in terms of the society in the Middle East. So the result can be a conflicted and unconscious group of people who have very little agency over themselves, who act on impulse, who deny their unconscious drives, but who act on them nonetheless, albeit behind closed doors or under some false illusion or misguided justification or warped interpretation of religion a sense of entitlement, a gender privilege, etc., um, who lead double lives causing more alienation from the self, who project what they do not accept in themselves onto others, who repress their feelings of inadequacy and exercise power over others. I mean, we see a lot of that. I mean, I think the world at large is power-hungry, but we tend to see it more clearly due to the authoritarian regimes that we have been subjected to. Again, you can, you, it can also lead to people who latch onto harmful ideologies that feed their insecurities, like ISIS, you know. Um, uh, but ultimately, it results in uh, you depriving yourself of access to a huge part of you and uh, stifling your potential, settling for being sheep. I mean, in the case of depriving yourself of access, you you know, there's a lot of good stuff that's in the shadow too uh, that you might want to experiment with. It's kind of like depriving yourself of your legs. I'm literally nodding along as you speak because that all just sounds so... (laughs) It just sounds so, like so home. familiar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sounds so familiar. Especially, I think, you know, for me, especially the idea of this, like living a double life and self-censorship, I think that that's something that a lot of us do, you know, where we have this private self that we are when we're alone or when we're, we're with our friends or, you know, and then there's this completely other version that we put a mask on and we pretend to be when we're with our families or when we're in the wider community. And that I think can be really damaging because it feels like you're not able to embrace all the aspects of who you are. And make a decision on what to do with them. Because I mean, you know, I'm not going to say that we should approve of everything we discover. If you fancy chopping someone up and eating him for dinner, it might be a good idea uh, to disapprove of that. (laughs) Yeah, we need to maybe in some cases temper what we discover in other cases really um, put our leash on them, you know. But uh, I think it's... it's, uh, we 
we are we have been gifted with consciousness and we ought to use it to our advantage leverage it as much as possible how do you think that shame sort of impacts our consciousness again it goes back to what you're ashamed of so let's take it back to general shadow elements it can definitely stifle your progress uh, you can feel a deep sense of disconnection with yourself and you end up subconsciously perpetuating that sense of disconnection it's interesting you say like what we are ashamed of because i sort of feel like one of the main things that i means or feels like for me is is that it's almost like you can't say oh i'm ashamed of this it almost just makes you ashamed of everything really yeah you don't think so no i don't definitely i feel like you know sex for me in particular was something that i was made to feel really ashamed about and sexuality and you know be a virgin and you know don't want and don't need and all of this stuff but i think for me that then stemmed into so many other things yes yeah, so there's no denying that the experience of shame in one area may trickle into other areas of your life but i i mean i think there are different types of shame and different causes of shame so we've grown up in a society that really cares about what people think of us now having this podcast may not be shameful or graduating first class might not be shameful getting married may be encouraged but then there are other things that will cause you shame like as you said sex relationships outside of marriage uh, freedom of expression how much skin you show so i do think that that one can divide uh shame into into its various branches yeah but i feel like maybe what happens then is it goes back again to this feeling of being unworthy because if you're told don't be a sexual person or whatever and you are and you can't help it and you act on it and you know you might not consciously feel shame around it mm-hmm. deep down i guess in the shadow if i'm using the term correctly mm-hmm. there would be this sort of idea of you're a hoe yeah you're a hoe yeah. yeah or like i've been told this and i'm not doing it so that makes me wrong or bad Yes, even and that th- this is the interesting thing. Uh now we're talking about sexual shaming in particular. The interesting thing about it is that even when you are conscious of it, even when you're able to be rational and recognize that this is not your story, it's someone else's, it doesn't necessarily heal the feeling of being in the wrong of cringing. And I think a big part of that actually goes back to this. It's the fear of the consequences that are so deeply ingrained in us. There is an emotional response in the body based on memory. So let's say you were punished quite severely as a result of something to do with your sense of sensuality as a woman or your expression as a woman. 
you grow up, you travel, you realize that that's really backwards and that's not your problem. But then someone comes and questions your integrity or makes unkind remarks. And even though you know that that person is fucked up, you have an emotional reaction to it and you cringe deep within. You shrink because deep down there is this fear that has been instilled in you about the consequences of that remark or accusation. It's a fear of punishment. So that's what I think it goes back to. I used to have panic attacks. I remember I, um, you know, when I was in a relationship, like I was fine with having sex and, you know, all of that, that was fine for me. And then when I was not in a relationship and I was like, cool, what do I do now? And I would literally have panic attacks when I was around a guy or if I wanted to, you know, do something with them, I would literally shake. Yeah. And that was something that I've, I've, it really bothered me because I was like, this is an unconscious feeling. Physiological. Exactly. On the surface, I don't feel, I don't consciously think that. I don't think this is wrong. Yeah, that's why I think if you go deeper, it may be, it's beyond shame, actually. It's, it's, it's the fear of the impact, the fear of the consequence especially if someone triggers it and says something to you, that fear is so deeply programmed that you have a physiological response to it. Yeah. Mariam, thank you so much. It's been so <laughs> great to chat with you. Thank you. It's been wonderful chatting with you too. Bye. Mariam is so thoughtful and just like gave me such a feeling of zen when I was speaking to her. I really appreciated her broad-minded insight into the ways that shame can impact our lives. In an effort to get more insight into how shame impacts our mental health specifically, I chatted with Heisu from BetterHelp, who is very well placed to answer all my shame-related questions. I think shame tends to make us withdraw from a lot of different situations and from conversations. So in turn, it does make us silent. And keeping anything painful inside can certainly lead to a sense or a feeling of like something is rotting inside of me. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of analogies to describe this. Like if you've ingested something that is not matching up with your digestive system or maybe you're allergic to it, your body wants to get rid of that stuff. It's not supposed to be there long term. It doesn't fit right into the ecosystem of who you are. And so you will experience a lot of pain and discomfort until this stuff gets out of your body. And I think about feelings and thoughts in a very similar way. Our feelings and our thoughts directly impact our behavior. It directly impacts the way that we are in this world and how we connect to other people, how we talk to each other, talk to ourselves. And if our insides are just filled to the brim with negativity, these shameful feelings, these senses of inadequacy, incompetence, or absence of self-esteem, I think it's inevitable that it's going to impact you in some way by keeping all this stuff inside. I love that analogy. I think that really speaks to the truth of it. How do you think that shame plays out, you know, when we're children, for example, and then how does that sort of play out in our lives as we become adults? You know, like, where does shame come from is the question I want to 
try to answer first before I get into that. And mm. I think when you view or adopt some kind of social norm as desirable, and then you observe yourself going against that in some way, that's when you might start feeling shame, like you did something wrong, maybe because something is wrong with you. Mm. And when you think about kids, their world is being shaped every day. Many of the things that small children experience are for the first time. Their worldview and their sense of identity, navigating this planet, their own society, culture, community, all that stuff, it's very much shaped by early caregivers, which a lot of the time is our biological parents. Sometimes it's other folks. You know, I think a really negative outcome of experiencing shame in a child is that this kid, this small person is now going to start thinking that he or she cannot change, cannot be better, cannot improve, cannot be competent, cannot feel good about themselves. And this just destroys any sense of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the belief and idea that I can do this. I can do anything, you know. And kids in various cultures might experience being shamed by their parents due to the social norms that their parents believe. And then kids learn consciousness and inner voice from their caregivers. So the way that parents talk to their kids often becomes the way that those kids talk to themselves as adults, yeah. which is something we call internalizing. And... There's a lot of research to show this too. Teenagers, adolescents are very much more prone to feeling shame than older adults. And so this kind of leads into what's going on with adults. There's this study done, I think, at the University of Bern that says like our propensity for feeling shame does decrease over time. So somewhere in middle age, we just don't maybe experience shame as much as when we're kids. You know, like identities for young people aren't completely formed once your personality and your character is more or less set, these norms and these expectations have a little bit less impact in terms of like shaking up your worldview or your sense of self. Mm -hmm. Because by this later stage in life, the idea is you have a pretty resilient sense of self. You know, you know who you are. You've discovered what you like about yourself. You've discovered the values and belief systems that may exist in your immediate vicinity. You've been able to identify what matches with you. And so there's not as much, I think, just like disruption when when something happens and a kid might then internalize it to think that they did something wrong there versus an adult who may be able to identify that this is an external thing outside of them. Yeah, be able to rationalize it, I guess, even a little bit. Yeah. Like you said, we care less as we get older because we are more ourselves. But do you think that shame might make it harder to become ourselves, our authentic selves? I think so. I think kids who grow up constantly being shamed or feeling shame will grow up into adults that don't have a very good sense of self. You know, like... I think it's very evident to all of us that folks that experience a deep sensation of shame, they have a negative impact to their sense of self-worth, self-image, the idea I mentioned of self-efficacy. Mm. So, you know, shame is painful because what you're doing is you are attributing all this bad stuff to who you are and your character. So if you constantly move through this world with this core belief that you are a bad person, it's going to like be very difficult to enjoy anything, right? It's hard to find beauty in the world, build meaningful connections with others, because you may be sitting there thinking you don't deserve that stuff. 
Yeah. One of my favorite sayings is you accept the love that you think you deserve. Right. Yeah. So even in terms of our relationships, then I guess having that sort of inherent unworthiness, I suppose, has an impact on on how we're able to connect with others as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am a very strong believer that our early experiences with our parents or whoever raised us have a direct impact on how we relate to other people, especially if that goes unchecked. If we don't work on ourselves, if we don't have some kind of process in which we discover our own feelings, our own internal mechanisms for navigating, I think relationships really do suffer. And there's so much truth to what you're saying about how we only accept things that we think we deserve. So even if you're being showered with love, adoration, affection from your community, if you grew up thinking that you don't deserve that stuff, you're going to find yourselves in some kind of like self-saboteur mode, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to start telling yourself things and believing in these things that you don't deserve that stuff, that either these people are lying or they're going to end up wanting to manipulate you in some way. So shame can definitely have a lot of detrimental effects on people. I guess it also then makes you feel like you need to receive those affirmations as well, instead of, again, being able to kind of find that within ourselves. Yeah, I think uh, I've observed that for sure is folks that are just constantly seeking out or fishing for external validation from other people. And that only lasts so long. It's temporary. You know, if you don't believe in those things yourself, you're going to need to hear it again Mm. because there's not as much power in saying it to yourself if you don't believe in it. And I think we all know people that are constantly seeking external validation. It's not a good look. It doesn't feel great to other people around them either. No, and then it just spirals, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times they end up pushing everyone away, even the folks that really did love them. Often I see it happen too much where people really push away the folks that were the most patient with them. Yeah. And then if people choose not to address these things, work on themselves, identify how to express themselves in healthy ways, many times you can end up alone and and. You know, I think that is the greatest fear of many people out there. Yeah, well, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot to say about, um, <laughs> I have a lot to say about that and how we're, as women especially, I think, really taught to think that it's so, like, we need a partner and it's so bad to be alone. And but that's Oh, right. And I wasn't even talking about partnership, but I just mean any meaningful relationships, yeah. no friends, nothing. Like, I can also go on and on because I have a lot of views <laughs> about all that stuff too. But to have no one, that's, yeah. I don't know if we're hardwired for that. No, no, that's horrible. I don't think that's something that we should aspire to. Right. Um, what are the other sort of impacts do you think that, shame has on our on our mental health as adults? Well, I know that there are a lot of links between feeling shame and things like depression and anxiety. I think this idea of shame proneness, like this propensity for feeling shame, it's speaking to someone's sense of self and like their varying degrees of adoption or buying into various social norms. So You know, we've been talking about how shame impacts our sense of self-worth. If you don't feel good about yourself, of course, your mental health is going to suffer. Mm. If you start thinking that you are not worthy of anybody's care, you'll stop taking care of yourself. Mm. And so letting things go like personal hygiene, responsibilities, daily tasks, 
these are the symptoms of depression. So you're almost inviting this issue into your life by letting everything go. Mm. Um, God, it's linked to everything because it's literally how we feel about ourselves. I came across some really interesting studies as well, which were linking shame to substance abuse, to more risk-taking behaviors. And I guess it's to do with what you're saying, which is that we're not really even taking care of ourselves at that point. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm familiar with that study too. And it's just this idea of shame reportedly being correlated with reckless behaviors, right? And it's not just shame, but it's anybody that doesn't really care about themselves, that they don't like themselves, they don't love themselves, they're not necessarily worried about their own safety or their mm. wellness. And these reckless behaviors are maybe this like passive invitation of harm coming to you. A lot of people don't want to start self-harm. But if I engage in risky behaviors, whether that's substance use or risky sexual behaviors or whatever you want to call it, I'm not bringing harm to myself. But like, you know, in the back of your mind, it's like if something bad happens to me, it's because I deserved it. Yeah. God, what a horrible feeling to have. Like, yeah. What an exhausting existence. Yeah. I feel like. The thing with shame is that it can be quite insidious to the extent that yeah. we may not even be conscious of it. Right. Is it possible to be unconscious of it, but it still have an impact on our lives? And how do we start to be able to observe and reckon with this? I do think that it is possible. And when you think about like folks that come seeking out mental health services, therapy, counseling, whatever you want to call it, much of the time, many people are unaware of what is going on explicitly, right? And part of the therapeutic journey is unraveling that stuff, processing all these internalized things about yourself, the beliefs that you hold about yourself, and all these things that come from external sources also. Um, so the way that our parents raised us and talked to us and socialized us to navigate this world and think about ourselves in the context of relationships with other people. Um, I think it's very possible to internalize the impact of shame and not be explicitly aware of what exactly is going on. And so, you know, I think if you want to get to a point where you're able to be conscious of this, like be aware of it as it's happening in the moment, of course, I'm going to support the notion that you should go see a therapist, right? Because this is the kind of thing that is going to get you more practice with looking inward, becoming more introspective, and really naming, identifying, and being able to talk about the things that are going on with you internally so that you can figure out how those are impacting your behaviors and the way that you are with other people. Thanks to Hey Sue for her brilliant insight. We'll be hearing more from her in a finale bonus episode, where we'll be talking about the difference in shame across cultures, and she'll be giving us some advice on how we can become more resilient to shame. In next week's episode, I speak to Rosaline Elbe, an Egyptian-born actress who you may know from the Emmy Award-winning show Rami. We grapple with the question of if shame is a necessary evil, and where we get our moral compasses from, if not through shame. If we talk about shame as how we get people to be good or bad, then what you're saying is that people's moral compass comes from outside them and that they can't be trusted. And that's so harmful. I'm Alia Moro, and you've been listening to Talk of Shame, a Wemina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. 
Sound design by the talented Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Amina producers Amira Ahmed, Elisa Friha, and Rhythma Ekinayaki. Thanks to everyone who submitted voice notes for this week's episode. Follow me at Arya Moro and at Wemina to submit your thoughts for future episodes. We'll be dropping questions every Saturday. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, download and review. It really does help get the word out there. Talk to you next week.